Yeah, well, thank you. Um, thanks so much for, for having me, and I'm excited, honored to be here. Um, actually, again, so uh, this was years and years ago, back before it was Christ Community Church, kind of in that little in-between time. Uh, I came out with my daughter, Myra. She was much younger and smaller back then, but we came and, and preached once. So um, anyway, it's good to be back again. Um, but thanks for, uh, for, for having us. Our passage today, you see on the screen there, is the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And um, it would be great if you want to follow along. I'm not sure if I'll have it on the screen or you can see the, the Bible in the Purex. And I think it's, was it page number um, 788? Um, we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel. This account, really two stories um, uh, about Jesus' ministry. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a common phrase throughout Scripture. In fact, the most common <coughs> command that God gives in the whole Bible is do not fear. Do not fear, fear not, some variation on that encouraging us. Really, it's not so much a command as an invitation to fear not and to trust in Him. Most common command in the Bible. He has to say it a lot because presumably we need to hear it a lot. We need to be told not to. To fear. Because there are a lot of things that make us fearful, that make us anxious, that make me fearful and anxious. Worrying about finances, um, about your job. Am I going to get a job? Am I going to keep my job? Um, worries about family, about school, about the loneliness, <coughs> about being abandoned by friends. We could go on and on and on and spend the whole time listing out things that tempt us to be fearful and anxious, natural disasters, global pandemics. Um, but in our passage here today, two stories that I think the gospel writer, Mark, really wants us to read side by side because there are these parallels. There's a lot of fear going on in these stories. Um, and so Mark, I think, wants to show us that the antidote, that the, the cure for this kind of fear is not necessarily getting better ideas than the ones you already have. It's not different behavioral modifications or anything. The true antidote to fear, the only lasting antidote, is a person. It's the person, Jesus Christ. So let me read for us. Mark 4, starting five. <coughs> On that day when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and 
and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, so no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of God. <coughs> Lord, as we look at your word and seek to, to see how it, understand it and see how it applies to our lives, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do just that. That you would do the work in each one of our hearts and lives that needs to be done. Um, that we would be changed more in love with you and more trusting in, your, in you, even in the midst of our fears. We pray this in Jesus' name. So, in this story, you've got really two storms going on. There's a storm on the outside that happens out of the sea. But there's also this, this kind of internal storm. But first, I want to talk about that first story. Um, the, the Sea of Galilee is really unique. It, it actually sits almost 700, um, 700 feet below sea level. So, it's got this big mountain up on one side. And because of that, the way the geography is, you have this cool air from the mountains kind of colliding constantly with warm air rising up from the water. And so the Sea of Galilee is notoriously stormy. You constantly have these thunderstorms that just pop up out of nowhere. Um, and so it's amazing. Mark says there in verse 30, says, 37, he says, verse 37, there's a great windstorm that arose. And the word he actually uses there is a word that you could almost translate as hurricane. So just picture what we saw of Hurricane Ida, the coverage you saw of what happened down in Louisiana and then going up further up north and all the damage that happened. And so Jesus' disciples are just utterly terrified. The waves are breaking into the boat. The boat's filling with water. They're about to sink. And they're, they wake Jesus up. And they're like, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care that we're perishing? 
guys, Jesus' disciples, were seasoned fishermen. Right? They, they grew up fishing since from childhood on the, the Sea of Galilee. They knew about the storm. So this was apparently a uniquely terrifying, terrible storm. Um, and so, um, but what does Jesus do? I love this. How he just, they wake him up, he gets up, and he calms the storm with just his words. It says, he awoke, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. It's like effortless. Almost like he's, like he's calming down a fussy child. Like, all right, hush now. Like, okay, you can stop. That's enough. And it's interesting, if you notice, if you look closely, he actually, he, he, um, he speaks to both the wind and the sea. It says he rebukes the wind first, and immediately the wind stops howling. And then just so that there's absolutely no misunderstanding that Jesus is the one in control, he then says to the water, peace, be still. And the raging waves just like instantly flatten out like a serene lake. I mean, if you've ever been on the water, you know, after a storm, the water will, even after the storm is gone, the water will be choppy for a few hours, right? But all he says, actually literally in, in the original, in the Greek, he just says two words, He doesn't have to do some elaborate incantation. It's not like if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you know, Gandalf standing there with the big staff, you shall not pass. He's, he doesn't have to wave a magic wand or anything. He just says two words, and they instantly obey. It's an amazing account of Jesus' power in the midst of the storm. And there are a lot of things that we wouldn't even have time to, to get into or ask. But there's a question that comes in my mind, and I wonder if this if this pops in your mind, too, as you read the story. Why did this terrible storm happen right then as they were crossing over? I mean, is that a coincidence? I mean, we're Christians. We know that the Bible says there's really no such thing as a coincidence. God's sovereignty is in control of everything. This was an unusually strong storm, this hurricane, that made these seasoned fishermen afraid for their and remember, whose idea was it to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee just then? It was Jesus, right? He's the one who said, hey, let's go do this thing. Then he falls asleep in the boat, and this huge storm comes. So let's make it a little bit more personal. Why would God bring into your own life whatever form of suffering you're going through right now? Why would he bring that cancer or COVID or that broken relationship I think it's a good question. It's a fair question. And honestly, I think the best answer that we can give, those who trust the Lord, who believe his word, is I don't know. I don't know specifically why he would allow that specific thing to happen in your life. In fact, if anyone comes along and says, I know for certain why God has allowed such and such, and such to happen in your life, don't believe them. Unless they have an actual scripture passage, chapter and verse, that tells you why that specific thing is happening in your life. We don't know. But we do know general principles of why God allows things to happen. One of the things the Bible is abundantly clear about is this. One thing we can safely say, no matter what the form of suffering is, we, it at least has something to do with Jesus showing us, teaching us something about who he is and our need to trust him. We can be certain that that is something that he is wanting to do in our lives in the midst of, of 
suffering, whatever the storm is. To teach us our need to trust him. And he uses these storms in our lives to, to teach us that he's the one we need to cling to. And he gives us this opportunity to experience his comfort and his strength in, in a unique way that we wouldn't be able to, to experience any other way. Um, we, we just had a beach vacation a few uh, weeks ago. I, I'm from, I grew up in Virginia. We've always gone to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So now that we live here in South Carolina, it's, it's a farther drive. But, um, but we were just up there recently. But I, I've grown up going there with my family. And so we always were around the water playing. I remember one particular time, though, as a kid, uh, we had a family vacation there, there at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, uh, and the ocean can get pretty rough. Um, they call it the graveyard of the Atlantic because there's so many sea like shipwrecks further out. Uh, but it's just the water can be really choppy, strong currents. Um, and a friend of mine, Will, and his family joined us. They um, weren't as strong swimmers, but they were there, and we were having a good time. And it's funny as a kid, you know, like, your memories, you know, just little scenes. I don't really have it clear exactly what happened and what order. But what I remember is being, I was up playing in the sand. My friend Will, I guess, was out still swimming in the surf, but I guess he had gone out a little way. The next thing I had heard was screaming. And so my friend Will's mom was there out on the seashore. She saw that he was caught in actually a rip tide, rip current. And so he was just getting pulled out. And he was swimming and struggling, and she saw it. And she screamed out, she was panicking, she couldn't swim. Um, and so the next thing I knew, my dad, who's grown up around water all his life, jumped in the water, he ran out, he swam out and caught, caught my friend Will. And you know if you're in a rip current, you're not supposed to try to fight against it, you swim parallel to the shore a little bit, and then it's safe to come in to kind of get out of that little trough, that channel of water that's carrying him out. And he brought him in. Um, but, um, but it's amazing that what, what my friend Will needed was a person to come and rescue him. See, fear, he was, he was gripped by fear. I was on the shore kind of frozen, and then I realized what was going on. I was gripped by fear. His parents were gripped by fear. Um, the fear is always personal. There's a, a, a counselor and writer named Ed Welch who says that fear is always personal at its root. And fear just leads you to look around for the right person. Um, and in that case, the right person was my dad. He was able, strong enough to go out and save him. If you've seen these little these video clips that are funny, you see them online of people on a roller coaster, these reaction shots of people that just completely freak out when the, like when the drop happens. And usually they're freaking out and scrambling. Usually they grab on to the person, probably even a stranger who's next to them. Because fear does that, it makes us grab out to the, look for the right person to hang on to. Um, is it always a sin to be afraid? No, it's not always a sin. Of course not. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes sad things happen. Sometimes terrifying things happen in this good but badly broken world. But Jesus calls us to look to him. Where you look in the middle of the storm what makes all the difference. And we have to answer that question for ourselves. Where do you look? Where do you run to? Who do you reach out for? How do you keep your composure? How do you not freak out in the midst of a storm or a crisis? It's by keeping our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he's perfectly in control. And he's not way off in the distance somewhere. 
Jesus wasn't up on the mountain calling down to them in the water, calling the storm. He's right there in the boat with them. He's with us. In fact, let me ask it this way. Have you forgotten who's in your boat, brothers and sisters in Christ? If you belong to Jesus, you can be certain that Jesus, who calls himself Emmanuel, God who is with us, he's promised you that he will never leave you or forsake you no matter what. And he's stronger than any storm. So there's this storm that was raging outside in the weather on the sea. But there's another storm going on in, in our next story. No sooner do, do they get across to the other side and they step on shore and they're confronted by this man who's being oppressed by demons. And he comes running out to them. This description there, the beginning of chapter 5 there, that, that's got to be one of the most heart-rending descriptions of any person in the entire Bible. Um, it's just sad. It's pitiful. This guy is a terror. He's a danger to himself, to everyone around him. He's violent. He's forced to live among the land of the dead and around tombs. He's wailing. It's just, it's just this awful scene. And so what Mark is describing here is this man who's so tormented by these demons that he's become almost more like a ferocious animal than a human being, with inhuman strength. And it's, it's hard to almost tell where the man's personality ends and the demons who are speaking through him begin. And so there's this, this terrible tug of war going on inside of him. Um, and so just as the disciples had passed through this terrible storm on the lake, this man has an equally violent storm that's just going on inside of him. And aside from um, the Jewish perspective um, that this guy is miserable, you can also notice that um, as Jewish people, they would instantly recognize this guy is utterly unclean according to the biblical categories of cleanness. So they've crossed the, the water into Gentile territory. So it's no longer a Jewish dominant area, but a Gentile, non-Jewish dominant area. And we get a hint about that when we hear that there are swine herders there, people who are, have you know, these herds of pigs. So, you know, even if you don't know a whole lot about Jewish laws, you probably know Jewish people aren't supposed to eat pork, right? They can't go to shields, so, unfortunately. Um, or they have to stick with the fried chicken. But, um, because it's, it's not kosher to eat pork. And so this whole area is just ceremonially unclean. And the funny thing is, so of course Jewish people didn't eat pork, they didn't raise pigs themselves, but the, the Roman army did. So most likely these pigs are being raised to be sold to the Roman army, the hated Roman occupying government there in your land. So that was doubly bad. And on top of that, this guy hangs out in graveyards, which also contact with the dead makes you ceremonially unclean for a Jewish person. So Mark is really piling it up, saying this is um, basically a man with an unclean spirit, living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people who are employed with an unclean occupation. And all of this is an unclean Gentile territory. So in the face of all that, what does Jesus do again? Jesus heals. He calms the storm that's raging inside this man. And he makes what was unclean completely clean. But this time, it's interesting, you know, on the, on the water, he just uses a couple of words. Here, he uses more words. I think not because Jesus needed to use more words necessarily, but because the man needed it. The man needed 
Jesus is dealing with another person. So that means this guy needs a conversation. You know, he's not an object you just do something to. Um, he's a person made in God's image. And so Jesus commands evil spirits. He says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he even kind of negotiates with them a little bit and allows them to go into a herd of pigs, which rush off and are killed. It's interesting. I, we don't have time to kind of go into a, an aside about that, but I, that like that detail bothers me a little bit. I think it's okay if it bothers you. Like those pigs didn't do anything wrong. Why do they all have to die? Um, that's not wrong to to wonder about that. And again, I don't know the answer. We know that God loves animals. He made them to to do what they do, and we're called to to respect them and to to not mistreat them. But God also uses animals to, to teach us. Think about the sacrificial system, right? Um, where animals were humanely, but they were slaughtered um, in order to teach us that we that our sin deserves and needs sacrifice. So again, it's one of those I don't know questions exactly why, but it seems that He was willing to allow this to happen for this greater purpose. But they they come down. The pigs are rushed off and are killed. Um, but after this conversation Jesus had with the man, again, what's the result? The, the internal storm in this guy is calm. And Mark says there in verse 15, it says the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, was sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. You see how like Jesus takes his time with this man. I'm, surely Jesus is powerful enough he could have just snapped his fingers, said a word, it could be done, and they move on. But he takes his time with this guy. And so the crowds all rush off. They build, get a bigger crowd, tell people what's happened, the herdsmen do. They come back. And so Jesus is still there with the disciples, and they're with this man who's sitting there. Apparently, I guess they found some clothes for the guy. Maybe one of the disciples said, here, you know, I've got an extra cloak. You can wear this. He's sitting there with them in his right mind. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus' tenderness? The way he just focuses, zooms in, like, uh, like zones in on this man, uh, in such a gentle and dignifying way. So Jesus is confronted uh, with these two storms. He confronts the storms with his power. But notice the response to Jesus' power. In the face of these two storms, in both cases, people don't recognize or worship Jesus at all. They respond with fear. Isn't that interesting? They respond with fear. The disciples were terrified of the storm. But when Jesus had calmed it, um, it says there, um, it says, and they were filled with great fear after he had calmed it. And they said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Or think about the crowds when they come back. After they've seen the man sitting there clothed in his right mind, like the local crazy guy, they all knew, okay, just give him a wide berth. You know, he's crazy, he's unpredictable, he's dangerous. And now they see him healed. Completely in his right mind, clothed, having a conversation with Jesus and the disciples. It says in the, the crowds, and they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. It's interesting. Both of these stories end in fear. And it's kind of ironic because at the lake crossing, the, the disciples ended up being more terrified of Jesus' power to calm the storm than they were of the storm itself. And then in the next story, the, the townspeople are more afraid of Jesus' power to cast out demons than they are of the frightening demon-possessed guy to begin 
And beyond that, you know, just like the disciples, these townspeople had witnessed this amazing miracle. But notice that that doesn't automatically lead to faith. The fact that they had witnessed this incredible miracle didn't lead them to put their trust in Jesus. In fact, it seems that it made them resent Jesus' intrusion into their town. And they asked him to leave. Now, even the disciples don't really get it. Um, Jesus asked them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? If you think about that, a lot of times people will say they would like to see a miracle of Jesus. And I, I would love to see a miracle of Jesus in person. People who are skeptic, skeptical of Christianity will sometimes say, well, you know, if God just did a miracle right here in front of me, I would believe. Um, I've had someone say that, something like that to me in a conversation before. But this story really shows it's, it's usually not that simple. The fact is that often when Jesus manifests his power and his authority, people ask him to leave. In fact, this formerly demon-possessed guy actually seems to get it more than Jesus' disciples, certainly more than the crowds do. You know, he asks Jesus, please, you know, let, me, let me follow you. And just gratitude, overwhelmed with gratitude that Jesus had healed him. And Jesus had his own reasons for, for saying no to this man. He said, no, you need to go tell others what I've done for you sends this guy out as like an early missionary to share what Jesus had done. But see, that man, the man who had been healed by Jesus, he certainly feared Jesus, but in the right way. He had the right kind of fear. He was filled with awe and with trust, which, which automatically gave him the desire to follow Jesus in discipleship, following him. So really, at the end of the day, what we can say is there, there are two kinds of fear, not one. There's the normal kind of fear that we think about, the, the fear that leads us to rejecting Jesus, to running away from him, wanting to put as much distance between me and Jesus as I can. But there's another kind of fear that the Bible talks about, a good kind of fear, really, that leads to receiving Jesus, to, to trusting him, to having faith in him. So we might talk about the two kinds of as like faithless fear and faithful fear. The Bible says in a number of places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the good kind of faithful fear. In fact, if you're thinking about the, the kind of fear that we see in this passage, just the terrified, craven fear. If we look at that, it would be foolish to look at that kind of fear, faithless fear, and then think, okay, well, I guess the opposite of that must be some kind of fuzzy, feel-good feeling of safety now that we know Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not how it balances out. That's not how it works. The choice is between two kinds of fear, but they're very, very different. When we turn away from that wrong kind of fear and anxiety and worry, what we exchange that for is actually a relationship with the power that made the world. It's not necessarily always cozy, but it is so, so good. It's not cozy and comfortable good. It's what we were made for. See, an encounter with Jesus' power leads to all. It leads to the right kind of faithful fear. Because you recognize in Jesus right here now, there's a danger here in his presence that maybe you hadn't noticed before. So you can even either have a fear that leads to flight, trying to run away from him, or to a humble kneeling down before him. Those are really the only 
Only two choices. And even when we kneel down before Jesus, there is a sense of a real danger here, if I could put danger in quote marks there, to kneel before such power. Why is that? Because to kneel before Jesus to say, okay, my life is no longer my own, I'm turning it over to you, it means I am relinquishing all control over my own life. I no longer claim the right to call the shots in my life, in all kinds of things in my life, and how I spend my money, and how I spend my free time, and the kinds of thoughts I entertain and dwell on, the kind of people I try to build relationships and friendships with. No part of my life is safe from the demands of his control and authority and presence. Recently, we, um, we watched a few of the Harry Potter movies, it's the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban. There's a scene where you know Hagrid, the groundskeeper, um, introduces the students to this mythical, magical creature called a hippogriff. There is a it's half horse, half eagle, and like an eagle's head with wings. Um, and as, as Hagrid is explaining it to the students, um, this hi hippogriff, his name is Buckbeak. But he says, now this is a very powerful, magical creature. It is incredibly powerful and strong. So there's a, you have to be very proper in the way that you approach this hippogriff. You have to face it. You need to bow with proper respect and humility. And then and only then, if it bows back, you can slowly approach it and you can touch it and might even let you ride on it. And it'll be your most loyal protector. And that's what happens with Harry Potter. But if you insult it, if you come in front of it just acting casually or disrespectfully, or you suddenly turn on your heels and run away like the bad, the bad kid, you know, Draco and Malfoy does, then watch out. So what we're saying is that if we're being faithful God to God and to his word, when we approach the Lord, in a sense, we come with the right kind of fear, with even a sense of the warning in the gospel invitation to come to who Jesus is because of who he is, because he's the power who spoke the world into existence. Jesus calls us to discipleship, to come to him, but when he does, it invites us to, to count the cost. You don't just come casually. The, uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, actually, he wrote all these little parables, and he had this interesting little, I don't know if you call it a parable, but just like an illustration. He said, I wonder if a man Handing another man an extremely sharp, polished, two-edged instrument would hand it over with the air, gesture, and expression of one delivering a bouquet of flowers. Would this not be madness? What does one do then? Convinced of the, excellent, the excellence of the dangerous instrument, one recommends it unreservedly, to be sure, but in such a way that in a certain sense one warns against it. So it is, he says, the way we are inviting people to come to Jesus, the way Jesus invites us to come to him, there's, there is implicit within there a warning. There is no life anywhere else except in him. But when we come to him, it's like someone handing you a sharp knife. You know, like, all right, let's be aware of what we're doing here. There, we're counting the cost and being aware of who this is who's calling us into a relationship with him. If I'm saved by grace and not by any good works, that means I've contributed absolutely zero to my salvation. So that means that this one who's calling me to him, 
Jesus means, it means that I lose all control. I have no bargaining position with God. And God can ask anything of me. He might ask me to ride out a terrifying storm. He might ask me, like he did with another guy, another gospel story, the rich young ruler, he might ask you to sell everything so that you can have a better life in following him. Or he might call us to keep our jobs and stay where we are and do our work in a completely different way than we did it before. No longer trying to make myself look good to my boss and to other people. No longer just trying to advance my career for my own sake, but seeking the good and flourishing of others. So the point is, in every area of my life, the demands of being a disciple of Jesus are absolute. And yet, and yet, this is the only way truly live. It's the only way to real life, to real meaning, and real significance with the one who made us. So yes, he invites us. Count the cost. But you have to balance that truth with something that is just as important as that truth. The truth is that Jesus is not only supremely powerful, but he is supremely good. He is supremely good. Another pastor put it this way. He said, Jesus is both safe dangerous. He's safe when we're hurting and hopeless. But he's dangerous when we think we have it all figured out. So let me, let me finish here with, with what I think is the invitation that Jesus is extending to us in this passage. I know it's tempting to run away from Jesus in the midst of a storm. And try to handle it, to figure it out on your own. I, I definitely know that temptation. But Jesus is present. He's present right now, and he's calling you to bow down before him, maybe, maybe for the first time. Maybe he's inviting you to bow down to him once again, because, yeah, you already belong to him, but maybe you've been pushing him away in your pain. But Jesus makes a promise. He makes a promise to us um, that, that he's with us. He doesn't promise that life will get easier. He doesn't promise that. When we hand over control to him, um, in fact, he's probably going to take you through a lot more storms. But the fact is, when you come to him, Jesus is going to wreck your life. <laughs> How's that for an invitation? He will completely rearrange your life so that nothing stays exactly the same. Because your center of gravity has shifted. And that's a violent thing, almost. The center of gravity of your life has shifted from you at the center to him at the center. But he will mess up your 